the best projects that the best points of the projects that I've been involved with the scientific the best points that have been when it's gone wrong or not gone wrong but like where something unexpected has happened and I think that is like a real parallel with with our that was Charlotte Jarvis, CJ, an artist based in London, talking about parallels between science and art. She teaches at the Royal College of Art in London and works with scientists in a special way. You will find a link to some of her work in the show notes, and you will hear from her and about her in this podcast and from quite a number of others. Hi, I'm Vivian Marks, and welcome to Conversations with Scientists. Today, an episode that is a conversation between scientists and artists, between scientists who foster the arts and artists active in science, and people who live in both worlds, science and the arts, which all makes for an interesting and sometimes challenging group of identities. I did a story for Nature Methods recently about science and the arts and felt it would be fun to do something more on this subject. So I invited a few of the interviewees and then some to a chat to talk about this together across multiple time zones, cultures and viewpoints. Science and the arts have plenty to say to one another. To foster this interaction, some labs offer fellowships for artists and welcome them into the lab. Charlotte Jarvis spent a residency with proteomics researcher Albert Heck at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. He is in this podcast, too. A while ago, I spoke with Romain Troublé, executive director of the Terra Ocean Foundation, or since it's based in France, Fondation Terra Océan, which is an organization devoted to the ocean and to ocean research. A link to that podcast is in the show notes. He talked about the expeditions he and his colleagues organize and the work done on the boat Tara and the fact that they have artists in residence on board. Here is Romain Troublé. Well, also, we have an artist uh, residence on Botara, and uh, and so we had gathered. Uh, we are welcomed so far ten artists on board for three weeks each in residence. But we have applications, so you have usually three hundred applications for eight or ten places. So it's a lot of uh, people who want to come. Yeah, I think art is really, really good. We need art to think the future. We need art to, to show us ways that we have never think about, and we should. We need utopia to go forward, I think, in this world. But we underestimate a lot the power of the arts to show us the way to, to show us new thinking. The power of the arts to show us new thinking. Let me share some new thinking about science and the arts in this podcast from multiple people who care about science and the arts. My co-host is Dr. Jean-Marie Zarate, who is a neuroscientist, an editor with the journal Nature Neuroscience, and she is a musician and an actor. Because there are a lot of people in this podcast, I thought you might like to get to know them as they dialed in. First, you will hear Dr. Albert Heck, the proteomics researcher who has had artists in residence in his lab. And he has worked with dancers, too, to produce videos about proteomics. Links to these videos are in the show notes. Then you will hear Dr. Catherine Musselman from the University of Colorado. She and Dr. John Rin, also at University of Colorado, who is also in this podcast, who both work in genetics, invented and found a way to offer an Art of Science Fellowship. Mika Futz was one of the fellows in the program. She was an environmental designer and is now in medical school in Philadelphia. And you will hear more from her and about her, too. First up, Albert Heck. 
Hello, Albert. Long time no see. Yes, exactly. Oh, I love your background. You know, this is a picture I took while cycling in the Netherlands. Uh, but this was also during COVID time. So uh, I sometimes say these are spike proteins uh, sticking out of the virus. But <laughs> yeah, but I, I guess it was uh, early spring or it doesn't look like yeah, it's been... You know, the, uh, I don't know if, I don't know the English name of these trees, but they are cut every year and they get new, uh, they sprout out off and, and then they get cut every year. We call them knotwilgen, but I don't know what the English name is, actually. Uh, it might not be that way in English, but I actually don't know my my trees. I should look that one up. <laughs> Hi, Catherine. Hi, Jean. We were just talking about the trees that look like spike proteins. Oh, <laughs> nice. How are you? <laughs> just uh, look it's wonderful up. to meet you. Thank you so much for setting all of this up. It's very exciting. It could be. It is. It depends on you all and what you have to say to one another. No pressure. <laughs> no, no pressure at all. And actually, if you're just quiet, I think there's like a meditation thing that I could do where I just broadcast 30 minutes of quiet. That's fine, too. I think we could all use that, right? <laughs> yes, I, I think. Uh, I see Mika is in. Mika, it's so good to see you. You too. Hi. How are you? So Mika and I haven't seen each other for quite some time. So this is an exciting reunion. This is awesome. So Albert, Mika was an artist in residence with, um, I guess, John and Catherine. You you all will explain how, yep. how that works. Ah, there is John. All right. Mika, how's school? It's good. It's crazy. I bet <laughs> it is good. crazy. But that's I, awesome. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> almost wrapped up first year, so we're on our last last little stretch and then summer break. Ah, and here we go, Charlotte from London. Oh my goodness. All right. So we're we're all set. <laughs> well, thank you everyone for dialing in and thanks Albert. I know it's late for you and for you Charlotte as well. Thank you for being here. Woo! Art and science. What on earth do they have to say to one another? So since you all, some of you know one another, but I thought we would do one round of you all where you talk about your identities. It was Jean's idea to talk about these multiple identities that you have. So please feel free to do that in whatever way. Should we start with, no, I'm not going to pick. You just, you start. <laughs> I think you'd better pick or nobody will say anything. I <laughs> How about I get the ball rolling? Um, I can start. <laughs> so it's great to meet all of you. My name is Jean Mary Zarate. I'm currently a senior editor at the journal Nature Neuroscience. Um, I am trained as a neuroscientist, specifically an auditory cognitive neuroscientist. Um, and I am also a musician and an actor. Wow. Here we go. That's why I thought it would be great for Jean to take part. <laughs> hey, you're on my screen, John. You're next. Okay. Um, hi, I'm John Rin. I'm a professor at CU Boulder, and um, our research is sort of multidisciplinary to understand how the human genome works as a whole. And as I've always been obsessed with, I'm very simple-minded, and so art has come into science for me to figure out how to make complicated data seem really simple so that I can understand it better. I don't believe a word of that, but okay. It's true. It's true. <laughs> um, but and so the 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 and I, and maybe we should add afterwards a little bit about the the 
art of science fellowship that you offer and also oh, tell yeah. people if they can apply and all that uh, stuff, yeah. listeners out there in listener land. So Catherine, you are next on my screen. All right, perfect. So I'm Catherine Musselman. Um, I'm a professor at the University of Colorado down on the Anschutz Medical Campus. Um, my lab studies uh, really uh, epigenetic regulation and kind of mechanisms of epigenetic regulation. Um, and I well, I think research is a really creative pursuit. I don't consider myself an artist in any way, shape, or form, um, but I really think art's super powerful for kind of capturing and communicating our shared experience. And um, I'm very interested as a scientist and also facilitating, you know, better communication um, with non-scientists. And I think art provides a, a really fantastic way of doing that. So I'm happy to kind of facilitate that bridge, even though I don't think I would cross it myself. <laughs> Facilitating is a big deal, right? Albert, you're half artist, I would say, and uh, 100% a scientist, of course, which doesn't add up. I'm sorry for that. but Yeah, but I think so. I'm Albert Heck. I'm from Utrecht University in the Netherlands. Um, I study almost all my life uh, the world of proteins in our cells and in our body. Um, yeah, to me, there is no such big division between art and science, because if you study the world of protein molecules and you see how they move and what they do it's so beautiful that yeah it's as beautiful as when you see a, a great piece of painting or a great piece of art and and i i also maybe as a scientist in this field like uh, vivian asked in my back you see uh i looked it up pollard willows is the english term um but ah, you know thank I, you for I, that <laughs> yeah but you know in that i see actually also the spike protein sticking out of a virus so so for me, everything always comes together. And also in art, what I find interesting, it's, it's the artist makes something, but it's your interpretation that makes it beautiful or ugly or or you do something with it. And, and I think that's a bit the same if you look at the world of, of uh, molecular science and especially how all these molecules move in our body. And, and uh, so I see almost no difference between arts and scientists, although... Yeah, maybe I would not call myself a real scientist, but also not a real artist. I, 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 you know, I just enjoy what I see. That's beautiful. And we'll, we'll talk more about this whole dance of proteins and beauty and things like that. Charlotte, you uh, spent some time mm. in the Heck Lab and uh, you're a, I think, very full-time artist. I appreciate the time that you took. So um, just uh, if you want to say a few words about yourself and Mika, you're next, just a warning. <laughs> you're on deck, Mika. Thanks. It's so nice to be here um, and lovely to see, it. see you, Albert. Um, uh, yeah, so I'm CJ and I am an artist. I'm also a research tutor at the Royal College of Art. All of my practice involves collaborating with scientists. And the beginning of that was actually a project that I did with Albert many, many moons ago. And I suppose I would make the distinction, but perhaps this is something that we could talk about later, that I don't describe science in my work. So I don't illustrate science. I use science to make art. And I would make that. For me, that's an important distinction. Not that I don't love a lot of work that is descriptive, but for me, that's important. So the easiest way to explain what I do is to just give you an example. So the project that I've been making for about four years with another scientist in the Netherlands, um, Professor Susanna de Chuva Suzal Lopez, um, is called Impos, and we're trying to make the world's first female, in inverted commas, semen. And we're trying to do that using my stem cells, but a combination of actually trying to make the spermatosa from my stem cells and then 
equally making um, art, kind of artificial seminal plasma using, amongst other ingredients, the blood of multiple women, trans and non-binary people. Wow. And that would be a kind of, that's a typical piece of work for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's me. Very cool. You'll you'll say more about that. Very very cool uh, work. So Mika, you have to uh, you don't have to top that, uh, but uh, but I know that you're a full time student now, but you're also an artist uh, in your heart. Uh, so talk about that a little bit. Uh, yeah, that's correct. And I don't think I could follow that up. Um, I really do consider myself a professional dabbler. I'm a current medical student. I was an environmental designer previously, and that's what I studied. So I worked in the architectural field. Um, and then for me, it's been always really intuitive to link science in design and art, um, but really just convincing other people that's that's a valid relationship and a really beautiful intermarriage. So I'm personally interested in neuroscience, neurology, uh, demyelinating diseases, and that's where I hope to bring these together. I think art has a really powerful role at the provider-patient interface, and that's what I hope to be working on going forward. Wow. I, I wanted to ask, and Jean, you, you should, um, you know, steer me in the right direction too. I thought I would ask a little bit the patrons of the arts, right? So Albert, Catherine, and John in the series of, of my screen, why you feel and how you got about um, fostering the arts, because, you know, you're busy, you have other things to do, and you could also say, uh, not my deal. Right. But obviously you're very engaged in this. And um, in the transcript, I'll put links to your labs and things. Why do that? You have other things to do. Yeah. I, if I can say, you know, I, it feels differently. You know, I, I don't think that I mastered Charlotte or, or whatever you how you call it. You know, she she came in and, and she took over and she did her thing and and and. I really enjoyed it. I could never think of the things that she thinks about. And if she then, like what she just told about, uh, you know, getting female sperm cells. Yeah, I know it's doable. So I think, wow, there's someone really uh, seeing that as an aim and as an art project. Um, yeah, that's not something I would come up with. So I, I'm more, it's like you, you all know that it's good to get people in, in your lab or in your working environment that have a totally different way of looking at things. And, and I think that is certainly true if you let an artist get into your lab. So, 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 and it's, it's not done on with a big plan, uh, at least in our case, it, it was more a sort of also not a coincidence, but it, it happened. And I can only say, wow, it, it was great that it happened. And I was so happy that it happened. Um, I mean, you're open to it, what happens, right? Which is different. And it's also taking a risk, right? Because people, you're letting them into your lab and they're looking around and doing things that's not so conventional. So it takes courage, I think, uh, to do this. And so just so uh, so people can apply, do you still offer this, by the way? You still offer a, a, a artist in residency in your lab, right? No, no, at, at that no. That, that the honest answer is no, because it it was part of a research program that we got funded for almost ten years or so, and and yeah, you know, it also needs a little bit of money, and 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 that's always a, a, an issue here. I would, if I had say about the money, I would directly do it again, but but you know, you need the right settings for it. So at the moment, we don't have it anymore, but I would certainly do it again if if it was possible. 
And I mean, you did these dance videos and 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 things like that, which which are very cool, and of course last uh, forever. But it's sad to hear that you don't have that uh, right now. But I hope it comes back. So, Catherine and and John, you have a, a fellowship that you still are offering, I think. Yep. Yeah. Why? And how? <laughs> and I guess Mika, you should uh, you can chime in on whether or not you find that find that um, cool for others to to join in on. Mm-hmm. Well, John, you should take the lead. I'll follow you. <laughs> well, this is sort yeah. of our dual brainchild. <laughs> yeah, I think we came up with we. I think the initial it, it came out of actually not anything to do with art, but more of like how do we get people how do we give back to science we're kind of getting old in our careers and science is fun and whatever but we really wanted to encourage people who otherwise might not have the means to uh be able to support their hobby like a some talent that they have in art we talked about it kind of stuck pretty quick and then we talked to some artists and they're like yeah that's a good idea and it kind of just it worked out and then we got um this applications i remember all of us crying um that like mika's introduction was very humble she's not only a remarkable artist scientist but a human being um and so to get the chance to meet these people and foster i think Catherine said it best with facilitate um their their talents um, and know that there's a way to incorporate it into science and maybe have it as a career, I think was our, was our goal. And yeah, then we got I, it funded. <laughs> <laughs> well, you funded it to start. And then yeah, I did it. I followed up with funding. Yeah. Awesome. Um, awesome. Yeah. Money, I, money I matters. Yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I, I think that that really sums it up. Yeah. We, I, we both kind of come from non-traditional backgrounds. So I think speaking to and really trying to recruit people from non-traditional backgrounds has always been a passion of mine. Um, that and equally, I think, com- again, communicating science to non-scientists, I think, is is really important. And so as we were kind of brainstorming this, I think this came up as something that might bring together all of those things. We could, you know, reach out to people who who otherwise wouldn't have the means to pursue this and and both kind of foster bringing them into the sciences, but also hope, um, hopefully foster a bridge between their art interests in art and science. Um, and then at the same time, like, really build a generation of, of people who are using art to communicate science. And I think, you know, Mika is such an amazing example of that because, you know, she's now in, in medical school and is really using art to help communicate to patients, right? Then in some difficult situations, I think it's just a really beautiful example of, of what we were, you know, hoping, what we envisioned, but really it, it comes down to, you know, the fellows, I think they have to do the work. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess uh, also uh, with art and with the arts in general, they don't only help to explain science, but they also ask questions of science, right? Sometimes they might, and I mean, Albert was very tolerant mm-hmm. about r- having art, you know, rattle the cage a little bit. And I, I know that um, Charlotte, or maybe you prefer CJ, do uh, correct me if I uh, do that wrong. It's fine. Ah, okay. Um, you know, it, it's about kind of drawing some things into question or just kind of going off and doing something very different. The dance uh, routines also in the protein videos are, are not, they're not trying to be proteins, right? Um, 
I I just wanted wanted to 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 just speak to something that somebody just said that um I think in my experience scientists who are really engaged with their field so scientists generally who are quite successful like Albert um are really interested in engaging people with what they're doing like I haven't found a scientist yet who doesn't want to communicate what they're doing and actually the higher up those scientists are like I found the trick to collaborating with scientists is actually just to write to the person right at the top because they are really engaged with sharing about their work right but also in often you know I think oh you know it is a big position of trust right and you're completely right to mention that earlier because you know you can't well you're never going to collaborate with a second scientist if if you like really you know mistrust you know if, if you make something hypercritical let's say of, of the practice or the work in the first instance but what I do find is that I find actually with works that could be seen as a bit more edgy and controversial that the scientists I've collaborated with are desperate to have that debate happen because they don't want to be the only person thinking oh I wonder where this research is going to go or what's it they really want the public and politicians and the media to be having that debate I'm really engaged in that. And so I kind of think, yeah, I, I actually think it's kind of quite um, a, nat- a natural fit with with people who are just really super engaged in their field. Yeah, but maybe if I can add to that, and Charlotte, yeah, this is how I remember it, so correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, there, there are plenty of people in my lab that work with what we call cell culture. So, so these are cells that you grow in the lab and, you have to go back in the weekend to feed them and, and they live on forever. And there was never anyone in my lab till I met Charlotte who, who uh, really asked me, what does that mean, immortalized cells? Mm-hmm. And, and then she asked me, oh, so I can also immortalize my cells. Now, there was never a, a PhD student or postdoc who, who had that ambition or that thought. And so I think it also shows that people from a different background, people from different culture, maybe they raise questions that make you think, because I also must have admit that I never thought, oh, maybe I can also immortalize my own cells or so. And 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 then, and that's really Charlotte, she said, then I'm going to do it. And and so, yeah, that I think is just amazing. So I, I, I don't see, you know, I, I think in, in our case, Charlotte uh, took as much initiative than I did. Uh, in in defining the projects and and um, raising the right questions, I think it's also super important to say that that happens the other way around as well. Like I think there's often this concept that it's going to be the artists and the creatives who are like front of the vanguard, like for 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 rethinking you know existential questions and like rethinking humanity or what we are or who we are or why we are. And actually, I found those discussions are happening in laboratories all the time. You know, the the lab that I was just talking about with the sperm project, you know, I really remember Susanna saying to me, we don't feel that we can define sex biologically at all. You know, and, and her saying that to me and being like, and as scientists, we've kind of known that for some time. And, you know, of course, in my mind, I was like, well, it's the artists who are going to be all about, you know, speaking about gender fluidity or speaking about you know sex fluidity in in this in this circumstance and and you'd think that would be something that would come from a thinker or a writer or an artist but actually that's that was me being schooled by the lab 
And I think it's really important to 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 recognize that that's a two way street. Like it's not the stereotype of like, oh, the forward thinking artists, you know, coming into a laboratory and like, actually, I think it's a massive like it's a conversation like and it definitely goes both ways. You are listening to Conversations with Scientists. Today, a discussion about science and the arts with Catherine Musselman of the University of Colorado, John Wrynn, also of the University of Colorado, who both work in genetics, former fellow of their art and science fellowship, Mika Butts, now a medical student. You're hearing from artist Charlotte Jarvis, CJ, Albert Hecht, a proteomics researcher from Utrecht University, and Jean Mary Zarate from Nature Neuroscience, who is also an actor and a musician. I mean, Albert, you did also tell me that you felt that your science, you then looked at your own science differently from the engagement with artists, right? Uh, Not to Charlotte, but you you also like uh, the arts in general. Is that, I mean, that's kind of special too. It's not something that everyone will do um, as as scientists. No, I I think, you know, you have to be careful as a scientist, you're often no... um, yeah, you're a specialist, so you know a lot about your topic. And that also gives you sometimes, you know, uh, a too close uh, view on, on your topic. And so it's already good to talk to other scientists that, that tell you other things. Um, but it's good to talk to anyone, even if they're not a specialist on your topic. They can make remarks that make you think differently about your topic. And and. And it's so important for scientists to engage a lot with each other. And, you know, that's also, uh, I don't want to bring it up, but during COVID, uh, yeah, people didn't go to the lab. But also for scientists, it's so important to be in the lab, not just to pipette, but also to have these discussions, to to, to challenge each other, uh, to talk about uh, all subjects in life, but also about the science. And and so you see that this creativity that that artists, I think, you know, they can also not do it in their room, I think. So you really need to have uh, input from your environment. And if this environment is broader than just the people who do exactly the same as you do, yeah, that can really give you new insights, is my feeling. Right. If I may, um, just to jump on to what Albert and and, uh, CJ have said. I think, yes, I think it's important for scientists to speak to other scientists, not only within and outside of their uh, specific areas of expertise. But I think there's something that we're glossing over is that scientists use creativity every day anyway. And I think that's why the interactions between scientists and artists and amongst themselves scientists are useful because there's something that sparks that creativity and it comes down to sometimes the most mundane things of problem solving. Something goes wrong on your rig, something goes wrong in your in your cultures, in your setup, you have to think on the fly to fix that and you're using your creativity every day. So it really does take the interactions with your fellow scientists and non-scientists, the artists, people uh, that don't have any scientific training but are curious about that to kind of spark that your own internal creativity to communicate something in, in a way that you normally don't speak about it or think about it. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think um, one thing I, I see all the time scientists doing is making analogies. Um, and I feel like an analogy of science then in print or art and it's become some form of art. 
where you you sort of take it from the curious, you know, the basic curiosity that's always going and trying to make it. I always think of it as like a snowboard trick, like they get judged on style points and everybody can do a 12 whatever nowadays, but it's how you do it and how you make it other people react to it. And I've seen a lot of analogies in science um, do that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's completely yeah. true. And and I think, Mika, I would be really curious to hear um, how you feel that cre like the creative aspect of art is helping you communicate with patients outside of just simplifying complex topics. Um, but if there's like creative aspect, because your art is really beautiful and creative. So. So you're an illustrator, I I, I gather, right, uh, Mika? Uh, yes, I do that on the side. I'm not professionally trained by any means, but that is how I like to practice. Um, but let's see. Yeah, I would say that it's just part of the conversation is just being able to reframe one's thought and speak to the individual in front of you and meet them where they're at and with what they need. Um, so some of the patients that I particularly like to work with may be nonverbal or choose to communicate differently. So having alternative means of communication, whether it be visual, whether it be, um, I don't know, some other sort of digital interface, I think is really important to be able to nimbly navigate those as a provider or just individual um, is something I think that makes science more accessible to the broader community. And it allows for interaction between different uh, scientists and different styles of information and specialties. Um, so that's what I'm really interested and excited about. Um, and as of right now, it happens to be more of that uh, illustration style, but um, I hope to in the future explore different uh, means and mechanisms and methods. So. Would it also be uh, helpful, do you think, uh, for patients to draw like their emotions or their fears? Obviously, being a patient is kind of a fearful um, experience and it's overwhelming. And I don't know, uh, maybe just uh, finding a way to put that into um, a drawing of some kind that they do or they do with you could be helpful. I don't know if that's completely off the chart. Oh, actually, I don't think so at all. So again, I'm I'm not a provider yet. I'm just a student at the moment. But um, one of the projects I'll hopefully be working on over the next year is having that more or less exact same um, opportunity, having some sort of digital whiteboard, some sort of digital mechanism through which patients can choose to communicate, whether it be written script, whether it be an actual drawing, so they can communicate their needs and fears and relay what they're feeling if they're undergoing a behavioral crisis, for example, or sensory overload, and relay the information to their provider um, in a more efficient manner than verbalizing it would be. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. Did it, how did it come up when you were interviewing for med school? Did it ever come up like, oh, you're an artist. Tell me about that. Or how did, how did that all come to play? I think everyone was very confused most of the time. So that's <laughs> part of the reason I have a website, just so I could send the link out and say, I make some signs and some art, take a peek. Um, so I still have that up currently, but it was it was an ongoing process and that was honestly the majority of my interviews was centering about what exactly I am, what I do, what I've done to get to that point. I think that's so interesting though, because um, it shows you where there is can be such a divide, right? Because really people put you in a box, right? And it's sort of like, I don't understand how you can be in both of these boxes. That's very confusing to me, which is really not. Um, but I think that it, it really kind of does speak to why sometimes there is this divide. And I think what's come up so nicely is the creative thought process really 
is a shared experience between all of us, but we often feel like we have to box ourselves into to one side or the other. And I think that's detrimental in the long run. <laughs> Absolutely. And that was one, maybe one benefit of the pandemic is that all of a sudden our lives were shifted and we had to be nimble and we had to adapt collectively. And so that was really the first time where I was like, I could actually speak to people in a more uh, intuitive manner about what I did and why it's necessary to have this mindset when approaching new challenges. Oh, cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I know um, that uh, you all uh, live in this arts science bubble, right? But then around it are people who really don't see where the connection is. So you probably have some interaction, particularly you who are working scientists, with people who are saying, Ugh, why are you even doing this? Or this isn't really helpful. Do you have those kinds of discussions? I mean, not hate mail necessarily, but just sort of um, people who are challenging you and saying this isn't part of your remit as a scientist. And Jean and I have been talking about identity issues and, you know, a scientist isn't a, you know, a monolith, obviously. None of you are are uh, monoliths, but it does seem like the outside world kind of wants uh, you to be a little bit of that, right? Yeah, I, I could say, you know, there are many scientists who sort of um, believe that everything has to be very factual and, and you know, the artistic freedom uh, that you sometimes put into, you know, uh, drawings or into uh, little movies, um, they are sometimes not that much appreciated by people who say, oh, you, you showed it like this, but actually it's like that. And, and you didn't do it 100% correct. And, and, and so, or, you know, you don't tell the whole story or, or, and this is true because the, the, the details of the whole story are yeah, very detailed and, and very difficult to explain in one minute or so. So you get that sort of criticism. Um, but, you know, I, I think, uh, yeah, I think probably it's the same with art. If you, I think there's no piece of art that, that people don't like and people do like, you know. Um, so so I, I think you don't do it for those people. You do it just because, for me, it's still, I, I really love when artists are inspired by what we are doing, um, but also they inspire me. And that, that's the main reason that I find it so much fun. And... Yeah, that that comes with that some people don't like it and some people don't understand it or whatever. Yeah, that that is, I think, I take for granted. I don't. I think we haven't really gotten any negative feedback about the fellowship, but what's been interesting is that people are just confused by it. Yeah, right? they they're often like, "What what is this?" And then they naturally assume that that both Jen and I must be like artists in our spare time, right? Um, and that's what drew us to it. So I think it's just a lot of confusion as to why we would want to pursue this. Um, and it is a bit freeform, I would say. Like we're still building it, and I think that's actually. A strength of it um that you know it's not very rigid but and, and i find when they ask that it's sometimes it is kind of hard to describe sometimes um so because you are trying to like again put it in this little box and that's um it's hard to do right so and just so i understand so it could criticism. be it could be a filmmaker or an illustrator or a tattoo artist or a, a musician yeah. right it, you're open yeah. to sort of all of 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 the arts right yeah, any of them. In fact, one of the submissions that we had last year was for um, like fabric design and garment making. 
So it was really cool. It could switch. Like, so if you yeah. twirled, <laughs> you, your whole identity switched in a second. Um, yeah. And it was really uh, very interesting. Um, but I think one thing I, Tom Wolf of all people, the um, electric Kool Aid acid test, and that he came I, to give a seminar on how to write. And he said, all of you scientists have been trained to speak to five people. If you want to speak to more people, you're going to have to go outside the intellectual sounding um, framework that you're you that's all you've been taught. Um, I found that really inspiring as a student to be like, cool, so I can talk the way I want to talk about science and not and I'll reach more people. And then I, I do feel like it was met a lot with maybe because I was a student of like, oh, well, that's not proper. And, um, you know, that kind of like, oh, people aren't going to take you seriously if you keep making jokes about stuff. And, and maybe to some extent that's true. But I think it, that we're taught to speak to too few people in our field. And working with artists allows you to see like how much more can unpack from these otherwise seemingly erudite statements. Yeah, I guess there's some rigidity sometimes if you're told this is the only way to do it, right? And yeah. this is the only way to be. So this multitude language or how you express yourself or maybe the figure one in your paper is different from other ones kind of thing. Yeah, but yeah. A paper where it starts out saying, like, I had no idea what we were going to find, but we ended up doing that. Like, if you actually communicated a paper in the way it actually happened, but we're so constrained of like, oh, the introduction has to be three paragraphs and it has to have like this kind of flow. And you get you, it almost becomes um, required but I would love to see a journal, maybe Nature Neuroscience can have some like freeform thing of like what really happened? What were you after? What came out of it? And how did you adapt to the problem solving along the way, as, as Jean was mentioning? I am. Um, I wrote a paper with a scientist. It went into a creative journal, but um, it was fun. This was with Albert. Well, that was with Hans Clevers. Oh, and, wow. um, yeah. and he was really into writing in a more like discursive is discursive the, the word I'm looking for in a more narrative way it was really interesting yeah. so we kind of wrote like a chapter each a chapter each chapter passed it kind of back and forward um and as scientist in Argentina I'm working with at the moment is really into the idea she really wants to do a paper about the collaboration and to try and kind of find a way of yeah, it's what you're saying, it's like different languages, isn't it? As of like kind of yeah. translating between these languages or bridging these languages somehow. I think that's super fascinating. And and it gets you into so many interesting topics. So like with the scientists in Argentina, a lot of what we talk about is how or all of science, or not all of it, but nearly all of it, is has to be written in English and how that's a major problem. Yes. Um, and a lot of what our discussions are about now, she's Argentinian and I'm British you know the politics of that relationship is like pretty pretty spicy and then <laughs> and we're talking about our, our projects about collaborative wombs but a lot of what we talk about is kind of colonialism and um the taking of space and then we talk, end up talking about that language of of um, science and how colonial that is um you know how colonized that is that language and I think that's kind of super fascinating and actually these spaces where what you're describing like these 
these opportunities to break out of the traditional molds of speaking and communicating, these like little gaps um, are where you can kind of really find something extraordinary and poetic and, and, and beautiful. I think that those like spaces between, like the in-betweens, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that's what, what you're describing. Like I love the idea of starting a paper with like, well, actually, we didn't find anything that we thought we were going to. Exactly. Yes. We're going to rehash it. So it looks like it, we found yeah. something significant. Um, yeah, or like, yeah, or don't like, do this. this. It'd be an interesting question that got raised at the end. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's yeah. Right. Maybe, yeah. you know what, I'm a bit, you know, we write papers and then we think or we, we say they are factual. And I, I think if you make a piece of art, then you allow 300 years later someone to make a new interpretation of the art or or and, and describe it new. I, I actually would love to write a paper with you, Charlotte, but you just <laughs> interpret what I wrote in your way. And, and you know, it, it, it's again, it's also the movie we made with Senzu with these dancers, you know, that, that started with me bragging on our research again and telling how beautiful it was that we found antibodies that... Uh, targeted uh, the COVID uh, spike protein. And and then the person asked, why is it called antibody? Where's the other body? (laughs) 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 And and this never would have come to my brain. And then I thought, oh, yes. In in German, it's antikörper. In Dutch, it's antilichaam. It's it's there, the, the, the vocabulary. I don't know what it is in Spanish, but probably also something like that. And and but still for us this is an antibody boom and you go on, and then you talk to artists or maybe to other people and they say antibody, where's the other body? And <laughs> you know and for me interpreting maybe data in a different way or maybe even a, a results in a different way is is something beautiful of art as well that 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 you can get something from it by yourself. And and I think in science, that's a little bit the case. We we try to make it more factual, but really when you, and I think that's the other thing that was also highlighted already. If you go really into depth, you always come to this point that you think, oh, actually we don't understand anything. And then that's what uh, Charlotte said about sex. And it's also about other things that we work on, uh, the immune response, for instance, at the moment. We think we know everything, and the more we know, we think, oh, still a bit more difficult. And 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 I think it's also that beauty and that that complexity that you want to. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to convince people from my science. I want to convince them from the beauty of life, and 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 that's what I think I try to do with these things, uh, with artists, or or also when I talk to people. See, I think it's also really cool to think about writing. We tend to write papers, as John mentioned, in a very linear fashion. It's also very detrimental in training young scientists, I think, because they read papers and they think that's how it went chronologically. And that at the end, you come to some very specific conclusion and you draw a model and it's all, you know, beautiful tied up with a bow. And um, and so then when their science isn't going that way, which it never does, um, they get really discouraged. And so I think it would be really also very nice in training to show them how things really go, um, you know, from the, from the get-go. Completely. Like the, be- the best projects, the, the best points of the projects that I've been involved with, the scientific, the best points of that have been when it's gone wrong or not gone wrong, but like 
where something unexpected has happened. And I think that is like a real parallel with with art. You know, like in 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 art, we have, you know, processes practice is like, you know, the, the one that gets t- touted out like a, a million times. But it's so true of of science, I think, you know, and, and I think of, you know, I, I had a project where I was trying to get a colonoscopy for a project and um and I couldn't get it. And it became this like it became the project, this ridiculous situation where I could yeah. literally book into like private clinics to get extensive plastic surgery. Like I, I could have booked to have like a tit job, to have like the whole lot. Um, and nobody would have questioned the medical ethics of it. Nobody was questioning the med- medical ethics of it. But when I asked them for a colonoscopy, because I needed a biopsy of my colon, this was to work with hands. So I needed a biopsy of my colon. Um, they were like, no, we can't because of medical ethics. We can't do that. And it was so fascinating because it just revealed this whole thing. And it was a major problem. Like we spent two years finding a doctor to to to, to put something up my bum, basically. <laughs> and in the end, we found one in Paris who did it cash in hand, like under the table, kind of like it was quite hysterical. <laughs> anyway, um, that's a whole other. Um, but that that revealed like this whole kind of area of medical ethics that that project kind of became about and 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 that was kind of part of that creative process but I think like always right it's when it goes wrong and you're like oh maybe this molecule would do the same thing to a tetranoma you know I don't I don't know like I, th- I think they're so similar in that way that the the process being the kind of whole point and and actually the the um the thing that a lot of scientists that I've worked with talk about is this kind of real focus and push on um apply on applications is really problematic right because actually it's the process by which you get to something and it's the fun and the fundamental science which is revealing all of these things and you don't know what their application is going to be and again i think the creative industries are kind of recognize that too or people who work within the creative industries that you kind of have to let the process happen to find the value in it Um, so where does it so that's really interesting and um there's so many things that you just made me think about but um so for us sometimes it seems really boring to go through our process and write a paper as an artist it sounds so good on the other side of the fence to be like oh you're everybody supports the process and not the product where do you find in in the art world where it's kind of like, oh, I have to do that again, or it kind of stifles your creativity, or do you not feel that? I don't know. I mean, I guess if you see the kind of work that I make is probably not atypical of the art world, but if you're exhibiting the same thing over and over again, then that yeah. could be quite dull, I guess. Um, but Again, I think this field is great because the people who have galleries that that put on this kind of work and who patronize this kind of work and who support it tend to be really into the process. Um, and certainly as well, something I would say is like, as I've got older, I'm a lot more confident in saying, you know, for this exhibition, I want to try something different. Or for this exhibition, the project is not going to be ready. It's not going to be finished. It's never finished. And in fact, it may never work. Like that's something <laughs> as well. Like, I may never be able to do this thing. It may fail completely. But I can say with confidence, there'll probably be something interesting along the way. And and I'm willing to 
risk like exhibiting the process and exhibiting it before it's finished and to not exhibit something as a finished piece of work. However, if you're working in, so, so I work exclusively in like publicly funded galleries. My work doesn't, isn't commercial. It doesn't get bought in like commercial galleries. And there is, I think, the difference because if you're working with a commercial gallery, they need a, a product that they can sell. Yeah. And that's hard if it's like a living thing. It's not conceptually impossible, but it's pretty hard to sell. Yeah. And it's pretty hard to sell the process because you can't put the process on someone's wall, right? Right. You can yeah. give value to the thing on somebody's wall by talking about the process, but ultimately the value needs to be somehow encapsulated into that object or that thing. Yeah. And for me that's not the case it's almost like a performance it's like right. it's like the four years that it took me to get there are, mm. are the work and the thing that happens to end up in the gallery at the end that's just a way of communicating it um so I'm not that's, even sure if that really no, answers no, that totally there's answers loads it. of I mean come on there's loads of boring things like you you know writing a bloody list of the <laughs> ingredients that have to go into females <laughs> it gets quite boring after like yeah you know, I think I think where the brain drain similarity between the two is funding. So, you know, if you become yeah. <laughs> known for something, they're going to fund you for that, but they're not necessarily going to fund you if you all of a sudden are like, oh my gosh, I want to make sperm out of eggs. Like, that's so cool. Let's do that. Um, and I'm known to be like, study DNA, go away. Don't, you know, you can't really deviate out of your funding because that's such a critical part for us so it's it's interesting how that's core between such different worlds um I think you can deviate I mean arts funding is slightly different like that would be like like if you get funded like in a residency or or like to make an artwork generally there is I think a bit more wiggle room there than than perhaps um well yeah maybe I don't know it's difficult I mean Albert, have you found that yeah. you can kind of reinvent yourself outside your kind of stand? Yeah. Uh, yes and no. Um, you know, for me, it's slightly different. I, my my uh, expertise in, is in a certain technology called mass spectrometry. Yep. It still gives you the freedom to one day, um, you know, we did some work about uh, a, a, a circadian clock in a bacteria and how it reads time and swims to the ocean when it's light and goes to the to the back of the ocean when it's dark. And, and now we work on, on clinical samples and, and study antibodies in blood. So, so in that sense, I have a lot of freedom, but it's, um, yeah, and I sometimes, but I, I fully agree with you. We should give each other more freedom. And, and, you know, I think what is so nice about the American system that we don't have is this uh, rotating scheme of, uh, of graduate students when they come in. Right. Yeah. Almost think, why don't we, instead of lifelong learning and uh, that instead of doing your sabbatical, you have to go or you should go on this rotating scheme and maybe then have the freedom not only to go to your lab neighbor, but maybe also to an artist or I don't know, to, to a lawyer or whatever. So, so, so uh, I think that would be extremely good also for your work on DNA, just to, to have some inspiration from another area. Um, but, but I fully agree. We are all um, yeah, so so much restricted in what we can do because of our funders. But you know, and I don't want to blame them. We are the system. Right, we also right. put it in place, and 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 um, 
and it's also with the the big journals you know they also um, have topics in fashion and then we all start to work on them and then and, and uh, i don't know if that's chicken or egg but you know it, it's that whole system that 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 we all uh, keep alive although we all know that it would be much better if you spend some time in my lab and i would spend some time mm-hmm. in your lab who knows what would happen and and i think we're all creative enough to know that something good would happen so why don't we do it that that's that's a bit uh, uh yeah the dilemma i think and and that goes beyond scientists i think that that goes for almost everyone yeah i guess being in an environment where you can feel free to draw yourself into question but also to see those things about words i love that uh, antibody um uh, anecdote uh, in the March for Science a long time ago. I remember seeing two people carrying two signs. One says, I am probiotic, and the other says, I am antibiotic. <laughs> I, got, I got a lot of giggles. I have a photo of it somewhere. You are listening to Conversations with Scientists. Today, a discussion about science and the arts with Catherine Musselman of the University of Colorado, John Rin, also of the University of Colorado, Mika Futz, former fellow of their Art of Science Fellowship, now a medical student. You're hearing from artist Charlotte Jarvis, CJ, also from Albert Heck, a proteomics researcher from Utrecht University, and Jean-Marie Zarate from Nature Neuroscience, who is also an actor and a musician. What would you say to people who are trying to find their way in incorporating arts and the arts, whether it's music or art, into the science that they do, but they're not as successful and in the stages that you are, particularly uh, you more senior scientists, right? Um, I know that Mika is going to find her way, but it does sound like it's going to be hard for her, perhaps in the medical community to really convey that. I mean, what kind of advice do you have for people who are, you know, trying to live those multiple identities and skills, of course? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing is to to just not limit yourself by your identity, right? I think you have to be willing to just say, you may not understand this, but this is my passion and this is what I want to do. And I think Mika's really was willing to do that, right? I mean, Mika, I think you went to your medical school interviews with some trepidation that, yeah, people wouldn't understand, but you were just willing to do that. And it obviously worked out beautifully, you know? So I think you just not limiting yourself out of fear is is really the best advice. I don't know if it will work, but maybe we should have a, a matchmaking page in Nature Methods. Mm. You know, we had a, a system like that in the Netherlands at some point. I, I don't know, Charlotte, if you were involved yeah. in as well, where, you know, uh, tens or dozens of scientists could pitch what they were interested in and what they were doing, and also a dozen of scientists could uh, pitch where they were interested in. and was a sort of matchmaking. There was also a bit of funding. And I think relatively nice things came out of that. And and maybe I see that only as a seed fund. And maybe after that, um, I also, you know, what Charlotte said, just approach people directly. I think that is for scientists also difficult. You you don't know, um, I don't know if I can send a mail to a famous uh, painter or whatever and say, oh, do you want to work with me because I have this ID? But maybe you should just do this eh? because it, it, yeah. it, it, it helps i think um but finding ways to encourage that and 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 to make the barriers go away 
uh, would be really helpful, I think. I think there are some really like practical things as well. Like like Albert just mentioned, it's called the Designers and Artists for Genomics Award. When we did it, it was called the Bad Award. And it's still, because it was the Bio Art and Design Award, it's still going and schemes like that do exist. And I think if you're a younger researcher, um, perhaps without, you know, your hands on the resources to practically say to an artist, come and do this in the lab. If you're a younger researcher, getting your group, so get, getting your lab to enroll or get involved in one of those is like, would be like the number one thing. And also to bear in mind that a lot of the funding that scientists get now has an aspect where you have to communicate what you're doing, right? An outreach aspect. And artistic funding is so tiny in comparison to science funding that actually if you really wanted to set something up if you if you can access that pot it takes a very small amount of money to to kind of get something like that going and i think practically that's kind of what you have to do because until you're running your own group you don't have your hands actually on the resources like once you're running your own group then you can say to a PhD student actually for the next week you're going to be growing Charlotte's stem cells would you mind taking her urine from from her and like, <laughs> like you know you can do that and and that has its own problems um for me anyway I always have to work out the person who's actually doing the work um but but yeah I think if you were low down that would be the way to do it like practically it's to it's to try and access that like outreach funding and to get in involved in those kind of schemes that do exist, like Catherine and John are talking about, to, to get your lab involved in those kind of things, I think would be the way to do it from the science side of it. But I also really think that, Albert, you could 100% write to artists. You just have to be careful about the way that you word it. But I kind of think if you were like, you know, your work inspires my practice, I'm... I find the poetry and proteins, then yeah, like, you know, right to Hockney. Hockney would do great protein paintings. <laughs> Keep it in mind. <laughs> mm. I think it's it's hard to find that language too, right? And to find to kind of step out of the language that you're maybe um, you know entrenched in because of the papers and the grants that you're mm -hmm. writing. So I guess it's good practice in general, even if you maybe don't send it immediately, you might send it one day though. Yeah. Also, I... Albert, I can hook you up with painters, like to a penny. <laughs> I can hook you up with painters. <laughs> Yay! Matchmaking is happening. Sorry, I just you know I wanted to comment on some of the things that I've I've heard so far because there, um, I think for those of us who are squarely in both, right, and I would imagine Mika, I could rope you in with me on that. When I was training, it was very hard for me to identify as both. I, we're talking about languages. And so I had a very specific way of speaking. The way you hear me speaking now is my scientific speak, right? And people often detect a slight Canadian accent with it because I trained in Montreal, even though I'm a New Yorker. I'm a native <laughs> New Yorker. And you hear that when I speak with my friends that I grew up with, when I speak with musicians uh, and whatnot. So I tend to transition in. Back then, it was just, no, I'm a very serious PhD student. I'm a very serious postdoc. And no, I'm a serious musician. I'm a serious actor, et cetera, et cetera. 
I think now for those of us right at the intersection, it behooves us to just like Mika is doing and like what I'm doing, embracing it and just putting it out there because we are the examples. Uh, Vivian is very aware of this. I told a story five years ago now for Story Collider where I told a 30 year arc of my life where I ping ponged between science and art. And in the end, they informed each other because my PhD is on the neural correlates of controlling singing pitch because I'm a singer. And so I ended up using my own musical expertise to design my experiments, to recruit my musician friends into my experiments, and they fed each other. So to me, that was the best part of my life because I could, and I was surrounded by fellow scientists, musicians, and we geeked out on, on equipment and whatnot to get that done. When I told that story, I got emails and direct messages from students now saying that's inspiring to hear that because I often thought I had to hide that away because the end of that story is like, I need both. I cannot put one aside. I actually have to do both and I will find a way to do both. Uh, even if I lack sleep for it, but, um, you know, there is a, there, that's the story, right? Like we were talking about stories of the actual research before the polished paper in journals like mine, but there's also a parallel track. There are behind the paper posts where you get to tell the story of what went wrong before you see the polished paper. There's also a paper in Nature Human Behavior. I believe it's from Paula Croxon, Daniela Schiller, and a third author that I do not remember right now, so forgive me. They are talking about the art of storytelling in your scientific writing, because you are telling a story. We're forced into a template of, I think it's called IMRAD, introduction, methods, results, and discussion. The, the language you use in each of those sections do not have to be the erudite language that we've read all the time. We can use the language we're speaking right now. So it's us. We start the examples moving forward. You want to have more um, less formal language? Well, I I'm sure they're going to not let us use a lot of slang in it. But yeah. we don't have to speak so high and mighty about any of this, honestly. Um, and as for funding, like I'm listening to this. I just had this conversation this morning with my fellow editors because this past weekend I made my debut on an off-Broadway venue for a for concert version of a new musical. This thing is four years in the making, in development, and they were looking for investors because they think it takes an average of seven years for a brand new musical to make its way to a full production. So we're halfway. So it's, and they, my, my editor colleagues were saying, it's like scientific funding. It's, it's the same. It takes multiple years. And I don't know, maybe CJ can speak to it. But what we all need to realize is we are actually very much along the same paths. The negative feedback, the criticism, the self-doubt, the imposter syndromes, we're really all the same. It's what we focus on as our expertise. Yeah. I, th I think you said it perfectly. It's uh, the we haven't really touched on the criticism and imposter syndrome, but I'm sure that's present in both worlds. Um, yeah, that's a very real thing for everybody. 
But then I guess talking about it so that you can resolve it for yourself and for others, particularly, you know, trainees, as you see people in your groups or as Charlotte mm-hmm. comes across people who are like, I really care about science, but my art teacher, not you, but the other art teacher is saying, no, it's not interesting. You know, don't don't go there. Right. So you need to, I guess, not be with those people. Yeah, I, oh, I really just any art teachers oh. are saying that. I mean, like cross-disciplinary practice is like the absolute like buzz of um arts academia anyway um I don't know if it's the same in in the scientific community I mean I remember when I was making like little films actually with the Netherlands Proteomic Society there were lots of people there who were talking about that then but it was more cross-disciplinary across like departments like yeah it's super yeah, it's all on the bridge. It. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. the buzz term. There's a new graduate program here called integrative biology, or integrate. Yeah, so everybody's trying to use the word integrative and cross-disciplinary. What I find a little is they, everybody wants to say that, but nobody wants to talk to the people about how do they want to be, and and that's a ongoing process where you can't just say our program is this. It's how do you facilitate each individual um and work with them and what they want like sort of how you and albert work together was hey i want to do this cool all right that's for you but it's not for everyone and then um how do you build a, a scientific program that adapts to a specific student's talents the structures of these programs are very rigid even if they try and say we're integrative and multidisciplinary and and all that it's um still not person-based and i i wish there was more of that in science i think that's what we really liked about the the art of science thing is just saying what do you want to do like we want to network for you we want to use our resource how and then i don't know i think it it worked well when you focus on what the person wants rather than what your program wants to be and i wish there was a little more of that in science hint hint to funders yes yeah definitely (laughs) definitely uh you that that's awesome yeah. It can also just be institutional, institutionally difficult, can't it? Like I have, yeah. I had a, a potential PhD student come the other day and she had set up a supervisor at my institution and a supervisor literally over the road at the scientific institution at, 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 in London. And um, both supervisors had agreed and the project was looking really great, but she couldn't find a way of doing a PhD across both institutions because those institutions are not, even though actually we have a program that runs between them, but they're generally not used to working together and some very boring stuff like, you know, well, who does she pay fees to? Or like, does she have access to both institutions? Like, does she get a library card for both? Does she like, all this stuff was just like a complete roadblock on it. And the only thing that we could really come up with was, you know, you you'll have to just do it with one institution and then collaborate with people from the other institution. And I think this is kind of what you're talking about is that like we're saying, yeah, we would love you to come and do this cross disciplinary PhD with us. But actually, we don't have the system for you to fully do it. We have the system for you to do an art PhD and bring in experts and collaborators, but we don't have the system for you to matriculate at both. Yeah. Um. Yeah, there's like, because it's like, it's also as a professor, you know, I was in, recruited to a very, and I think they're doing a good job on interdisciplinary, but I had to pick a department in the end. 
Mm. And so then when I pick that department, then I have to teach that subject. And then uh, it's like the library card thing. There's literally cards that won't work on the same floor in two different labs. And it's like, yeah, but I guess there has to be some structure. I'm just not a big fan. Um, but you're reviewing the applications from people in the arts, right? And or do you? I think you also are working with people in the arts at, at Colorado or at yeah. the University of Colorado, or I forget how that works. The mechanics. I know we just kind of did it very grassroots, where we said, you know what, you have to be American. It turns out because the funding is from the National Science Foundation. So we're just like, whatever you got, throw it our way. Um, okay. and so that really broke down any of these things. And it was really nice that this, the school's a state school and they were fine. Um, when I originally, uh, did the money, it did come from University of Colorado Boulder and there was no strings. They were like, you can do it. I think if it was a lot more, they would have had issues. <laughs> I think it's stuck under the cracks, but, um, and then now with Catherine's grant, getting the national science foundation to say, that's great. We want, we want to do that. And I think they were pretty flexible, right? That just became, yeah. we had to be American. Uh, just at a U.S. institution. So not or an American US citizen, but yeah, at a U.S. institution. And I think we could expand that through an international kind of component of the application, but we would have to have a target. You know, we would have to say like, we want to fund this person internationally or work with this institute. It can't really just be free form because you really have to justify that. And um, unfortunately, <laughs> I, I see. Think, so someone, um, something let's with say, the RCA. Yes, I was just going to ask. Yeah. We should do something. I'm sorry, CJ, what? No, I was just saying we should do something with the RCA. Absolutely. I think should, that would be wonderful yeah. just to open it up because, you know, then I think we could just justify that, that because the National Science Foundation is very open to that, which I really love about them. I really love their funding model. But of course, at the end of the day, it's the taxpayers paying the bill. And so um, they just have to be accountable to that. So, um, but yeah, so we did, we just put out kind of an open call and, and we review the applications that come in. But it was, it was great when the first round, because we ended up with local people who really fit the bill. And that was really fun. But it actually, we got applications from all over the world. Um, and so I think that, um, yeah, we just kind of see them as they come in. So it could be a student at Royal College of Art who has an idea um, and who wants uh, to do something with you, um, independent of carbon footprint and how far London is from Colorado. But in general, I see that. Well, we did it during the pandemic. So we did it all on. Everything Zoom. Was virtual. And I think it was kind of fun. It was like my favorite Zoom meeting all <laughs> like of every month um, to just kind of, it was very, you know, casual. Of, and I think it's like, um, we've been talking about process is so important. I think a really important thing in process is nurturing the process, giving it ingredients of time, space, no deadlines, um, and kind of just getting to know and use your networking resources to help other people get their thing. Cause there's no way one person's going to be able to like know like everything to help you with anything. Um, so. I hope you Albert can get funders uh, to do something similar too. That would be fun um, because you're so open to the arts. So maybe you can resurrect a something um, because they know your track record on on this, but it just sounds yeah. like uh, it means lobbying, which you all don't have a lot of time for, but sounds like it can be successful, right? 
Uh, it sounds like a great scheme. I, I, I was thinking a little bit, you know, I, I think it's also, I think as an artist, but also as a scientist, you, you need to be specialized and you need to really go into your topic if you really love it. And, and I think it, it's also important not only to say, okay, you know, I was just thinking if Charlotte and I had had the same education, it would have never worked. And, and, and so, I think these sort of residentships or fellowships to to go to another house where they speak a different language and 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 where they do different things that that is really good. I I'm I'm not hundred percent sure. Maybe for some people, but I don't think you should put all students from day one in the same house and think that will solve the the issues or so. I I, I think it's it's really nice if you uh, have people who are really good at what they do and and uh, a good scientist or a good artist. And and then have this open mindness to to also be open to work with and I think that's also an important aspect also of science or you you think you're a specialist but you can only collaborate if you trust the other specialist in doing his or her thing and and uh, the scientists that cannot collaborate that are the ones that you know they don't trust what the others do because they think they are better in his field or her field than than this expert in the field and. And that's a bit the same in these collaborations. Um, you know, if I if I uh, was going to tell Charlotte each time that her interpretation was not hundred percent correct and she should do this experiment, that experiment, that that would also not work. And that's the same if I have a scientific collaboration. So, yeah, I think we are specialists because it's very difficult to to know everything. And I I rather see two experts, you know. Um, uh, cross fertilize each other then, then then that we all get into the same framework of 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 taking bits of everything or so that that that's a bit my reservation yeah i mean the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to get to know somebody <laughs> <laughs> whether the project works or not or is creative art like amazing art or not um i just think the more you engage with like you're saying people that are different um, the more you can make the spectrum of the rainbow. Um, but if you just stay within your your hue, you're never gonna really get the the bigger picture. But I um I'm I would love to follow up and see if there's a way we could work together because we all have some like documentable art and science um to see if we can get more collaborative, like start a snowball effect of you know people building on other people's successes and or attempts and um, see if we can get more funny because I would love to just hang out in Albert's lab for six months, but that's hard to, you know, um, <laughs> and CJ, I think your project is absolutely brilliant. And I, I think it like to me, it's special because I think gender is, is a really hard topic for a lot of I, it really struck me when I saw a psychologist talk that what do you do if your three-year-old says they're the, they're not what their genetics is? And like, do you trust a three-year-old or not? And I, I remember she did a really artistic talk. And ever since, um, I've always just been like, I wouldn't want to name some somebody gender neutral because they can choose later and never not do the whole blue cake, pink cake, you know, all these things society does to enforce it. But when you do something like taken egg and turn into sperm that like defines like how fluid it literally is um that you can make you, you can be whatever you want um and so i think that art will get 
more people thinking about topics that are otherwise harder to maybe maybe it's safer for some people to be like oh that's scientifically possible if we put these genes in then and then they can you know have a safer ground um to to think about those kind of things but for me that topic i i didn't think about it much until i saw an artist give a talk about it and then I, and it's stuck with me ever since and now she's a friend so it's Catherine met her too it's uh um, very cool this is how these interactions kind of work and it takes special people to do this not everyone can do this but it sounds like you've all met people who have been open to your science art and both and and that's um really special and congrats on the musical Jean. i think this was lovely i don't know if you all want to add anything you're welcome to add anything uh but i i thought there was a lot of poetry, a lot of advice, a lot of honesty. I'm just wowed by what you all uh, talked about. I guess if I could just have a small question, um, because we're talking about cross-pollination or cross-interactions with scientists and artists. What would you say to the people who are right at the intersection? Do you need to specialize in one or the other to excel at either? I don't think you need to. But with a big caveat, and this is slightly speaking to what Albert was saying earlier, you do need to respect that people are experts because they've put in the time and the commitment into those fields. And I think the place where it can get a bit, um, the place the place just where the quality can go down is, is if you kind of expect to suddenly be able to dip into the other side without having put in you know, the 20 years that the next person has. And I think that's the bit which is challenging. And 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 it's and it's respecting that the people that you're with have got the expertise and the time that you have in your field. So this is where I think, and I imagine Jean, people probably question that when when and you obviously have been doing them both for all that amount of time. But like I think that is actually the bit which which is important is is the like that it's not just a kind of casual picking up of like, you know, I can't casually say, oh, I'm just going to go and, you know, oh, I've had this great scientific idea. You know, of course I haven't. Like, I've, you know, like I, I and I don't because I don't because I haven't been been a scientist for, you know, 20 years, but I have done 20 years of arts education and I am a real expert in that. And, and equally, I wouldn't expect a scientist that I'm working with to to say, oh, oh I'll, I could be an artist tomorrow because that that's. Dis disrespecting my expertise and, and the time that I've put into it. Mm -hmm. And, and I, so that's it, is that I think you absolutely can, but that's predilected on have you put in the commitment and can you commit to both sides? Probably yes, but yeah. Yeah, I don't know how you did it, Jean. Like being an editor sounds like more work than my job alone, <laughs> plus having this other job. So I think you're a superhuman example that will, will be a role model for a lot of people. But I think one thing that comes back down to this funding thing, that if you become an expert in something, but you're open to encouraging that other half, you can get funding through your expertise to you to enable other people or facilitate um, for most of us that do sleep. Um, you know, <laughs> like I, I find facility, like, cause I'm not gonna pretend I'm an artist, but I do know that I care about it and have scientific advice to impart to people. Um, so yeah, I think there's gotta be some balance. It's a, it's a really good question because if you do two things, you can 
it's hard to be a hundred percent in either, but you've already accomplished both. So you can, you know, have that expertise in both. Um, but for the normal human, I, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's just being open to other people's skills and talents and um, being whatever you're drawn to, I think naturally becomes somehow you way you can facilitate other people's expertise. Yeah, I think that's why collaboration is so important too. And mm -hmm. I think it depends on the level that you want to go to in your chosen pursuit. You know, I think we run into this even within the sciences. There is such a push to be multidisciplinary and you run the risk of spreading too thin and, and not doing things well. And so I think it is important to know like what level do I want to get to with this? Do I want this to just kind of complement or is it better for me to find a true collaborator that really is an expert? I I really think it kind of depends on that level that you want to go to. My, I think I'm actually the, the best example of somebody with such a narrow expert. The only thing I know is how to find genes, but it doesn't <laughs> do any good to say what the, they're there. You have to work with, we've worked with people from fertility clinics to brain to blood because the genes are going to do whatever they're going to do. And I'm not an expert at any of those things, but I'm good at finding them. So I can like <laughs> find dirt and then figure out who can make a sandcastle out of the dirt. Um, so I think it's, yeah, like Catherine said, collaboration is, is the, the key to being multidisciplinary. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think these different components of our personalities and who we are as creatives and scientists and whatever else, they can elevate and really enhance other aspects. I think doing a 50-50 divide is really challenging to maintain. And so for that reason, really, it is collaboration. It's the willingness to lean into that kind of uncomfortability and to reach out to other people um, where we can really tease out those areas that we would like to further develop ourselves. And I, I don't think I have much to add to this. I, I, I really also like what Charlotte uh, answered, but I think it also, you know, everyone is who they are. And uh, you could also ask the young, can you do one without the other? And because I think you can also get the energy from mm -hmm. your second life or your first life. And, and maybe you cannot be such a good editor if you couldn't do your music. And, and, um, and for me, it's very simple. My science goes uh, not so well if I can't run. It has nothing to do with each other, but if I can't do the running, I feel less uh, happy and I cannot think uh, clearly about my science. And, and so that's me. Um, but indeed, I cannot be uh, both in the Olympics for marathons and, and be a scientist, but I need both to to excel in one of them. And I don't excel in running, but I, I, I need to do it. And I think that's for every person, you know, scientists are also just human beings. We all need our, uh, we are not, you know, 24 hours a day a scientist. We also uh, do other things. And that could be inspiration through to arts. This could be sports. And, and um, so I think it's everyone's own question and everyone's own answer. I think there's no recipe for this. Um, so I think if, if this makes you feel happy, then go for it. Uh, and I think uh, John once explained to me the YOLO uh, move. Let's just call it that because it's probably not called that in, in uh, snowboarding. A, there's only two people. Yeah, it's only a couple of people that can do it. Yeah. You only live once if you try the trick. Um, but it's uh, I, I really think I'm the same with Albert. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say how much time I spend cycling. 
And I'm very <laughs> proud that I'm the slowest cyclist in Boulder, but um, I need it in order to to do my other stuff. Um, and I'm just surprised you don't cycle in the Netherlands. I thought ever that's yeah. all that was. <laughs> I do that as well. And maybe we should go on a cycle trip in Boulder. That's, that's also good. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, lovely. Did you have anything else, uh, uh, Jean or, or Charlotte? I know you have to run. Um... Yeah, I, I also have to break up, uh, I think. Late. Well, thank you so much, everyone. This was a lot of fun and this was very informative. Thank you. Thank you for the time thank and the you, energy Vivian. and the ideas and all this cool stuff. Thanks. Yeah, thank thanks you so much for organizing. Thank you. Same here. Cheers. Bye. 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 That was Conversations with Scientists. Today, an episode about science and the arts with London-based artist Charlotte Jarvis, CJ. Dr. Albert Hecht, proteomics researcher from Utrecht University in the Netherlands. Dr. Catherine Musselman of the University of Colorado, Dr. John Rin, also of the University of Colorado, and who both work in genetics, Mika Futz, former fellow of their Art of Science Fellowship, now a medical student in Philadelphia, and Dr. Jean-Mary Zarate, senior editor at Nature Neuroscience, also an actor and a musician. I'm going to compile a list of the fellowships mentioned in this podcast and others and try to work on that matchmaking idea we talked about. If you have suggestions about how to turn some of the ideas mentioned in this podcast into reality, do please get in touch. The music used in this podcast is David Gives Views from Palermo, licensed from Artlist.io. And I just wanted to say, because there's confusion about these things sometimes, Nobody paid for this podcast and nobody paid to be in this podcast. This is independent journalism that I produce in my living room. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening.